1: Welcome to The Political Party, this episode featuring Professor Sarah Childs, Professor of Politics and Gender, Director of the Centre for the Study of British Politics and Public Life at Birkbeck University. This has been... I mean, I know I always say this is one of my favourites, but every guest brings something different, obviously, but this felt like a really different chat to a lot of the other conversations. Obviously, since this show's gone weekly, it's allowed different voices and different perspectives and just different parts of politics in. So it's really great to just focus on one area of policy. We we do talk about other things as well. But it centres, as you would expect, on the politics of gender and feminism. So it's just great to have an hour or so just to explore one area. And, of course, it's nowhere near enough because the issue itself is so broad. But we went through... I've read a lot of Sarah's work before this. I've met Sarah a couple of times through the Political Studies Association. And what is and it comes out of the conversation. At a time when we really need brilliant people to go into politics, I'm always slightly shocked at brilliant people who don't fancy it. And it becomes a recurring theme. And I think if I mention it any more to her... She's going to tear my head off, so I don't, I don't want to... I'm not going to ask her ever again if she wants to stand for Parliament, but it does, it crops up each other. Because she does so much work in Parliament, she's published a thing called the Good Parliament Report, which was done with the Speaker's Office. She was a special advisor to the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Women. She's part of the Speaker's Conference on parliament, Parliamentary Representation, and she's part of the Commons Reference Group on Representation and Inclusion. So, as well as uh, teaching people uh, in, in academia... On top of that, she's making a real impact inside the political arena itself to improve politics, not just for women, but for everyone. Um, So it's just brilliant. I mean, again, as I've said with so many other guests, I hope we can get Sarah back in and I hope we can do it in a way that is around some form of progress or some sort of change because it is deeply depressing. And I know we don't... I suppose there are recurring political issues on this, um, but they tend to be around the parliamentary arena in the sense that it's about Brexit or it's about Corbyn's leadership or it's about Iraq or the things that you'd expect. But in terms of broader issues of representation, where you really get... I mean, there's so much expertise in this, I feel a 100 times cleverer already. It's brilliant. There's so much... I always... Part of the thing getting academics on is that it's just so interesting talking to them and getting the benefit, you know, basically getting like a free university session at these people. So, like, this was just so good. Um, she's an immensely impressive person, Professor Sarah Charles, and I will shut up now and allow you the benefit of that expertise. Don't forget to email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Keep the discussion going. We've had so many great responses uh, to last week's show uh, with Chris Cogland from Renew, which was brilliant. I can't believe a week has already gone by. Um... But here you are. It is Professor Sarah Charles. <laughs> professor Charles, welcome to the show. Hello,
0: thank you very much
1: for having me on. Um, I've never, I've, I'm always very deferential in the company of uh, learned and esteemed colleagues. Can <laughs> I call you Sarah? Yes, Prof- you can. Do, so at university, do people have to call you Professor?
0: No, they
1: don't. No. OK, so it's, it's quite an informal... Um,
0: it is. I'm always a bit perturbed when people call me mom, which happens what? every so often, yes. Where? I always think I should be like a chief inspector of the police with that.
1: Who calls you mom?
0: Normally overseas students, so I guess it's just a different cultural, you know, register.
1: And would, that, would they be predominantly from America or not?
0: Um, I think, thinking about the example where it happened, I think it might have been India. Oh, wow. But I was a bit sort of thinking I was Helen Mirren, which is quite a nice thought, I aspire to in, in old age.
1: Oh, it's very cool. Well, ma'am, welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for coming on. Um, you're at Birkbeck University, which I is am. a university which um, is very popular, which allows people to study at, effectively study at night and fit it around their jobs. It
0: is London's evening university.
1: As a result, is it predominantly mature students that you've got?
0: It is. It varies between the undergraduates and the master's level. Master's level students, that at least I've I've, I've only been there um, since last September, are predominantly in maybe their 20s, 30s, 40s. Undergraduate, it's very varied. I've got a couple of men in their late 60s. I think they were trying to compete when they were trying to work out how old each, <laughs> each of them were. But, um, yeah, that's a little bit more varied.
1: It's a brilliant idea to allow people to do that, especially in a busy place like London. Um, Politics, a very interesting time. Have you noticed, I mean, I suppose maybe there might be a time lag on this, but given how chaotic politics has been maybe in the last four or five years, an increase in applications? Is there any sort of noticeable effect on the market of the...
0: I think there has been, yes. And I I think in lots of ways as well, it's about politics and also international relations and the sort of post, I guess, Iraq environment as well encourages people to be more interested in what's going on.
1: So actually, Iraq, perhaps even more of a catalyst than the referendum or Scottish independence or Trump? I think Trump.
0: those things are probably too close at the moment.
1: OK. Um, but the work you do is, is predominantly, I mean, it works in lots of various different areas of politics, but particularly uh, politics and gender. And yep. you, as well as being at Birkbeck, you have a variety of roles, a uh, special advisor to the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Women. You're involved in the Speaker's Conference on Parliamentary Representation, the Commons Reference Group on Representation and Inclusion. You authored the Good Parliament Report and various recommendations. So there's so much to talk about. Before we come to all that, what I'm always fascinated by, particularly with political academics, is people who, probably like myself, got politicised quite early and found politics very exciting but went in a different route. Did you ever join a political party? Did you ever want to be an activist first, or was it always the academic route that appealed?
0: My route came through feminism, actually. I've never joined a political party. Um, I work and speak to people from all political parties. Um, In fact, my first degree was politics and African and Asian studies, and I didn't want to go anywhere near British politics. It wasn't anything (laughs) that interested me at all. Um, And I went off and did um, a Master's in Women's Studies at York, which I adored, Um, and I thought, I'm interested in representation and the ideas of representation so I started a PhD part-time very sort of chaotically in lots of ways I didn't really plan to do it and then what happened was the election of New Labour and just 101 women MPs and suddenly from thinking that I was going to write about ideas. I had all these wonderful women to talk to and I realised just how interesting it was and that's what got me into writing about British politics. Having thought I wouldn't do British politics, the last thing in the world I wanted to be was a lecturer in British politics. (laughs) The gender stuff is really what I do and it's why I wanted to be a professor of politics and gender even though some people advised me that um, I'd be better if I didn't put gender in my title. But I decided that's... Because it, it, it narrows you. People have uh, assumptions about people who do gender and politics and, you know, there's a sense in which you are not broad, you're not knowledgeable. and I think that clearly is changing. Like, for me, it was very important. That's what I'd done all my work in and I wanted that to be recognised.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, as with any specialism, it's important, you know, it helps people to have in the title, I would think. What sort of assumptions do people make, do you think?
0: Um, plenty of people think that you're biased, That you have and bring with you a set of politics and a set of goals and in lots of ways we do you know I do want there to be more women in politics and I don't think that's a problem I think lots of people who do political science are also in some ways normative have ideas about how politics should be but they get away with presenting themselves as being sort of cloaked in the um, coat of objectivity where somebody like me has always got an agenda
1: but then I suppose you know, even the even the humblest student of of politics would accept that we all have our own biases anyway. So that's that should be priced in with all of us, and not. <laughs> Do you think there is something when you talk about the specialism of gender that is a specific issue with putting gender, or would that be a specific issue with putting any specialism into your title?
0: I would say it's to do with gender in many ways. I mean, I, I used to joke with my students, if you miss the one week on gender in a mainstream course, I'm going to count that as two absences, right? You know, <laughs> I'm really not going to take that, as, take that lying down.
1: Um, in terms of representation theory, in that regard, what does representation theory mean?
0: Well, it, it has lots and lots of different ways of being understood. It can mean that people should be present. So we can look at the House of Commons and look at the numbers of women, ethnic minority MPs, disabled MPs, and look at their prevalence in the population, see a gap between those two percentages and think... Some things not quite right. So that we can think of as descriptive representation. We can also think about symbols as being representative. So how do we symbolise our politics? Who gets to symbolise them? But also what, what kind of objects? So you might think about the portcullis, thinking about Westminster, and what yeah. does that sort of say? Does that indicate ideas of openness or does it suggest ideas of things closing off entrances? Those kinds of ideas. But in lots of ways, the study of gender and politics has really focused... Lots and lots of focus on numbers, how do women get there, what kind of barriers in their way, who gatekeeps access to political office. But I think for much of the study in in the last 10 years or so, it's been what we call substantive representation or acting for representation. To what extent are the interests and the concerns of women acted upon in Parliament, by whom and in what kinds of ways? So, for me, that question has really driven quite a lot of my work. What you know, Often it's talked about in terms of what difference does the presence of women make in our Parliament, so linking descriptive and substantive.
1: Apart from the obvious point that, uh, you know, women are half of the population, or slightly more in some places, um, so that that would be just a desirable thing anyway, uh, because half the population should be literally represented in that regard... Um, I always it always strikes me as odd whenever you get and usually it tends to be in you know local party branches where there just aren't enough members where you have a male women's officer <laughs> or an old youth officer or something like that you know now obviously they could represent the views it's not impossible for a man to care about women's issues but it, it it's not ideal is it i mean it, there is no way that a man will ever know what it's like to be a woman and as a result can't fully represent I think think
0: I'd go back to your point about obvious, because I think sometimes people still don't actually accept that, because what they'll do is they'll say women aren't putting themselves forward or women aren't interested enough in politics, or it doesn't matter at all. And in fact, maybe five years ago, I'd have felt quite confident that we were changing the image and saying, actually, it really does matter. And I'm wondering whether there's a backlash, actually. What we're seeing increasingly is arguments that I think suggest that, look, all these women who've come in, they're a bit middle class... Where is the white working class man? So I actually wonder whether the debate has actually gone backwards in some ways about accepting that obvious claim for women to be present. But jumping to your point about whether men can represent women, they can, of course. They can, particularly if we know very strongly what it is that women want to have represented in politics. But I think the arguments around presence that really link substantive with descriptive suggest that actually interests what kind of decisions that we should come to actually occur during the process of representation. And that's when different voices need to be present yes. so that we can actually have space for new ideas or alternative perspectives to be part of the mix. So I'm, I'm always, you know, I don't want to go down the road of saying men can't represent women and only certain people can represent certain people because clearly it 's about politics, and people mm. conscribe to ideas and attitudes and political ideologies, but nonetheless there 's something about those experiences that should be present, and we need those variety of experiences, of all different kinds of people in our parliaments
1: in terms of the backlash then against that uh, against that progress and there has been in many ways you know demonstrative progress in terms of numbers and the ninety seven election as a result of all short shortlists was usually boosted that, although it still left us with a huge way to go. Where's that backlash coming from? Is that is that more prevalent on any wing of politics or is it just as prevalent on the left as it is the right or the centre? Or
0: In many ways, th- there has been quite clearly and objectively a decline in the diversity of class backgrounds of our MPs and studies can show the decline of MPs from manual labour, for example. Yeah. I think it's also about the rise of the career politician and the kind of attitudes that people have to this distant, elite group of folk who yeah. go through that very cliched route from university to special advisor into a safe seat into government so so it's not that I'm suggesting that class doesn't matter but I'm worried about how claims for both of those groups seem to forget that there are working class women yes of different you know ethnicities who should also be present so I worry just about how quite legitimate debates around different identities being present in politics seems to very rapidly Blame middle-class women for taking the spaces of other kinds of folk.
1: This intersectionality, which is very much the the phrase of the time, yep. and, and rightly so, and is fascinating, and has really opened up, I think, for a lot of people, a, a more interesting way of looking at politics, it, even without ideology. Um, this idea that you know you're absolutely right. Not only are you know some women not middle-class, but they are also black or Asian and or di- and disabled. And when you get people that embody all those different um in in a political sense disadvantages really because those things do make it harder for people to get elected or selected in the first place i find that really interesting i mean is that is that something do, do you think that there'll be greater public awareness of it does this feel like there is a, a a momentum behind this sort of movement? I think
0: so. I think at the last election there were some clear firsts. There were, for example, the election of some black a black disabled women in Battersea, for example. But I think also in the in scholarship, we're finding some interesting outcomes. Colleagues of mine in Brussels have looked into the representation of young minority ethnic women, and what they've found is that they are more likely to be selected than older minority ethnic men. They have what's called a complementary advantage... Because they sit well, metaphorically and I guess literally, with those older <laughs> men, a bit like the TV hosts, where you have the old grey, ah, wise and white guy with the rather kind of glamorous some younger Sky Sports News. Absolutely, as long as it's not some of the you know the Italian ones where it's even more <laughs> obvious. Um, so yeah, so I think it's quite interesting that that by taking those kind of intersectional approaches, you can actually find outcomes that you might not have expected, because you might have imagined that younger minority ethnic women would find it even harder to get yes. into politics, but actually they, they seem appealing, because in lots of ways they're seen to be less threatening of the incumbent male power. So this is really interesting work by a colleague of mine, Karen Sealers from Brussels, that I, I think it's worth us thinking about in, in the UK too, about who gets to be included when spaces are opened up.
1: Does that, does that make you feel conflicted, if people are... Perceived, obviously, if it gets more women elected, then on, 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 in a very real way, that is a positive thing. But if it is through a, an almost patronising or dismissive way, then uh, are you not in some way reinforcing negative perceptions of I think, female politicians?
0: I think we have to accept that when spaces open up, we need to fill them with women, yes. right? So I sometimes think this about myself, you know, people often say, well, I don't want to be a token, don't invite me because you need a woman. Well, actually, I always think... If you're asking somebody as a token, at least you've got a space which you can occupy and which you can then say something important. Yes. I don't mind being a token because it gets me into the room.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's. uh, I completely agree, but obviously (laughs) I'm not a woman, so I'm always acutely aware whenever you discuss things that you're not, you know, (laughs) of of using the wrong language, or even though, you know, uh, the one thing. You can
0: normally tell when people are using the wrong language or the you know, when it's clumsy is okay, yeah. right? And that I think you can get away with it. If you're a little bit clumsy but your heart's in the right place, yeah. you're probably not going to get criticised too much. I
1: hope, well, let's see how, I get, <laughs> see how I get on over the rest of the interview. But, um, I mean, one thing that really struck me was and I, w- I would like to get your view on it is whether this is a problem across equally shared across the political spectrum or whether and it's easy to look at the Tory party and say well, they've made less progress equally they've had two female leaders two female prime ministers um, and have made a bit more progress in the last few years I, I used to work for the Labour party and I remember not when Allman shortlist first came out but as a member of staff I had to effectively enforce them. We had a rule in local government Mm -hmm. that we wanted to achieve gender balance in all Labour groups and therefore if a male councillor stood down or was, for whatever reason left or died or whatever, they would have to be replaced by a woman. It was really radical and I completely agreed with it. I was shocked at the opposition to it from men and women in the party and I was really shocked that Labour for me, which at that time enshrined things that were broadly positive in politics, Where the leadership were on side and the stuff on side. I actually think probably most of the members were. But where you get these little fiefdoms and these people say, well, I totally agree. And a nimbyism, really, about Mm -hmm. equality, where people say, well, I agree with them in general, but, you know, David's waited years to be a (laughs) councillor and it's sort of his turn and you don't want to like him because he's more left-wing and this is a way of Mm -hmm. deselecting hard-left people and all the rest of it. I was shocked at how uniform the reaction was, that people really felt it was a bad idea, male and female. I think perhaps not everyone spoke their mind in some of these meetings because they were into on you know on both sides of the debate but um i've never been at, that was a che- that was a turning point for me in terms of realizing that it wasn't just the Tories that had a problem with this there is something endemic in british politics that is effectively anti-woman and i wonder if you have a view on that do you think it is worse on the left than the right or is it just a problem that is equally shared
0: i think when it's about power and who has access to powerful positions however they are perceived mm. or how little power they might have in reality, I think there is competition. And I think there are those who assume that they have a right to fill certain kinds of spaces. And I think that problem of getting women into politics is across the parties, right? Um, and what's happened is the Labour Party took a very bold decision, and one that's clearly delivered, and what I think's very impressive about it is that they didn't walk away from it. As you said, people enforced it, and it wasn't always very popular, there were backlashes. Legal back- challenges? Yeah, absolutely. In
1: Europe?
0: Yep. Jepson Wire, Wy- elliot yeah. very interesting kind of case. Somebody who assumed they had a right to fill a space <laughs> because they were, and had been, very active. It's, all, it's always interesting um, that actually people often say, well, well, in shortlist it'll lose you votes, and actually there's there's that one case right women who lose on all women shortlist it's not to do with the fact they're on an all women shortlist yes. there's, there's academic research to suggest that so be, you know I'm almost, when people sort of throw that at me as, as proof that it's a bad idea I think I think um, it's worth putting them correct well there's an almost a sort of
1: glass cliff element to it because they'll use all women shortlists in seats that perhaps weren't as winnable in the first place
0: well mostly all women shortlists are used for seats that are winnable yeah um, because that's, that's a really critical thing. You've got to get selected in a seat, a party's going to win. Yes. Right. There's no point in selecting women in, in, in seats where they're not going to win because all you do is increase your numbers and percentage of candidates, but you don't change who actually goes into Parliament. So getting women in the, in the, in the seats you already hold, those you've got a good chance of winning, is where it's really important. So, as I said, Labour used a, a rule and they enforced yes. it. And I'm, I'm increasingly of the view that actually rules are important to change our politics and that when you rely on exhortation... <laughs> it's much much harder and I think that's why you see the differences in the parties and their outcomes and that gap widened this time.
1: In terms of leadership then this is something we've talked about so many times with a variety of guests across the spectrum from different backgrounds why have the Tories had two female leaders and Labour have had none?
0: Um, It's a difficult one to answer and I think in a way sometimes (laughs) we should reject the opposition between that. You know, which party does better? One gets more women in, one gets leaders in. And I think what it shows is just how difficult it is for Labour in over the years to have considered individuals as authoritative, as leadership material. I mean, it's worth reading Harriet Harman's book about her decisions. I think in the Conservative Party, what we see perhaps is a presentation of individuals whose gender is somewhat downplayed and therefore they're not necessarily presenting themselves as gendered leadership candidates. Whereas actually in the Labour Party, there's a much stronger tradition of women being part of, if you like, a group. There's the Parliamentary um, Labour Party Women's Committee, for example, and many of those leading women have been linked to those kind of concerns. So I think the parties are very different on that, but I I think it's a fool's you know, choice to say which one is better because of that. What you actually need is lots of women in your party and women who can stand as leaders without their gender being seen yes. as a negative or as a
1: disadvantage. Because what's remarkable about Margaret Thatcher, I'm sure this is a debate that will continue for many, many years, is that in a way, and a, I think in a disrespectful way, her gender is discounted, not as a mark of respect, but by some people on the left who say, well, it doesn't count because she wasn't really a woman, you know, whatever that means, which I think is a, an astonishing thing for people to say. What's remarkable about Thatcher is she didn't just lead the Conservative Party, she led it in the 70s, when politics then was even worse <laughs> than it is now. The Tory party then was even worse than it is now. I mean... A, you know what she did in office is a completely different discussion. Yeah, I mean, she proved that a, that a woman's body could fill the position
0: of a prime minister, yeah, and could do it successfully over a long period of time. And I think that that has to be recognised. I mean, I know I think Joe Swinson's recently got into trouble for suggesting there needs to be more of a, more of a celebration of this and perhaps a statue. And and, and there is an ambivalence I think amongst women who are who are leftist feminists, about the role of Thatcher. But I think it's worth thinking about that notion of ambivalence. You can prove that the job can be done, and I think Thatcher really did have an impact in that respect. She also encouraged this current generation of Conservative mm. women to be in politics. There was a lag effect as her, with her as a role model.
1: Was she a feminist?
0: I don't think she was a feminist. She said she wasn't a feminist. Um... Feminism for me is about the movement, uh, to quote bell hooks, to end sexist oppression. Um, And if you're not prepared to accept notions of structures of oppression, then it makes you quite hard to be a feminist. Mm -hmm. You can be a liberal feminist in terms of desiring equal opportunities. And it seems to me that, that in many ways, conservative women frequently increasingly subscribe to that kind of understanding to, to remove barriers for individuals to open up choices so I think and, and again Harriet Harman has spoken about this how, how she sees women in the House of Commons as being much more open to work together on some of those kind of issues that might be disproportionately of concern to women so you can be a certain kind of feminist if you're a conservative but there will quite clearly be radical feminists and more leftist feminists who will really query to what extent or how far that really goes. And it's about, I think, understanding systems and structures of oppression rather than the notion of women having individual choices that we choose and then we carry on.
1: Obviously, we're focusing on predominantly on Parliament as an area, and I do want to keep on that discussion. But I wonder what your experience is in academia as a as a woman in academia, as a woman who's a feminist in academia studying in politics, do you experience, do you think, in similar ways, the sort of challenges that women in politics face getting into Parliament?
0: I think, yes. I think sometimes questions around feeling that you should be in places, that you should be part of certain kinds of organisations or activities some of this is historic right I can remember going to some of my first conferences that were overwhelmingly male and I went on my first one about elections I went back to my room and burst into tears and thought what on earth am I doing but over the years with increasing numbers of women in academia particularly in political science what we have is a great network so actually you, you take a buddy you go with a buddy and also you know, some men are fantastically supportive. I've had great mentors, both women and men. There are those men who do study gender. So let's not, you know, just suggest that the only people who do feminist research are women. It's That's not true. I think there is a commitment, officially, formally, to be more supportive. But quite clearly, if we look at, you know, progress, if we look at gender pay gaps, if we look about who does the kind of... Uh, the pastoral work. does lots of problems in academia that mirror lots of other kinds of workplaces, sexual harassment, all of these kind of things. So I think it would be naive to assume that acad- academia is any better than those other kind of places. But I do think that we have, I mean, over the years now, I've met just a whole crowd of wonderful gender and politics scholars around the world. And I think we do look out for each other. We do support each other. And I think that's been one of the most invaluable experiences of my career.
1: It's really showing to know. You don't want people. I mean, in terms of that first experience when when you, when you burst into tears, was that was that as a result of people being rude?
0: No, it was it, not directly at all. But it was about being somewhere where you're very much in the minority, where there are established friendships and networks, where you don't feel that being in, say, the bar is somewhere that you really feel comfortable. So, I once invited mm. a colleague um, to a women in politics conference to try and get them to see and feel what it likes to be in the minority, and, and obviously yeah. it just didn't work because we were much it was much easier. We made much more of an effort to be friendly, we had cake and didn't it didn't prove anything um, <laughs> But it's about making sure that there are structures so that that you... I mean, I'll give you an example. I've got a a colleague, uh, an early career researcher, who's going to her big American conference, and one of my women in politics colleagues said, I'll hook her up with some other PhD students that I know so that she's not suddenly walking into a room full of men in suits and not knowing where to put herself. So some of it is about, you know, who occupies spaces, who feels Mm. like they belong, how you interact. If, If some of these events are very boozy or... I don't know, quiz-oriented. It, it, it can feel very, you know, strange, shall we say.
1: Quiz-oriented?
0: <laughs> what does that mean? Like, oh, literally, so I mean... In... So, yeah, some of, these, some of these conferences have quizzes where you have to demonstrate just how much knowledge you know about politics, and, yeah, I always found that one a bit strange.
1: So what, like, uh, would they do that as like <laughs> Let's a... Let's not go there. But would they do that as a pub quiz, or mm. do you mean that people would quiz no, you quiz, in... a pub quiz, a pub quiz. Sometimes al- it's so boring a pub quiz.
0: <laughs> but there's also stories about people, you know. I mean, still young women, you know, are getting really inappropriate emails saying, "This is my hotel room." No, no yeah, I'm afraid so. But again, I wouldn't. I'm not trying to suggest this is this is particular. But I think we have to, you know, in in the kind of era of Me Too, I think it's worth, you know, recognizing that um, some of these behaviors that affect how people feel about their work and 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 how they engage in their work is quite problematic. I mean I was told that I'd get a much better job if I, you know, stopped doing the kind of work I did. If I did something more serious, I'd get a more serious kind of job. Those kind of I'm hoping how can that you those are more dated. serious. <laughs> well, you'll have to ask some of the other guys
1: you get on this show, maybe. I mean, I was going to save this question for later, but it's something that I've talked to a lot of people about. I can't believe for all the progress we've made as a planet, let alone as a country, that the power gap between men and women is so severe. And as a result, I can't believe there aren't riots about it. I genuinely can't believe I think if it was the other way around, (laughs) Whitehall would have been trashed and set on fire. I I am stunned at how little sort of street action there is about the, the about all sorts of inequality, mm-hmm. but specifically on gender equality. It may it, I actually find it a real problem that I can't really fully accept that we live in a progressive society.
0: It's interesting because you talked about the street, and it just made me think immediately of the suffragettes. Yeah. And just how much they did. Yes. Occupy the street. Yeah, yeah. And actually we think we talk about them being force fed and we and we talk about you know the push on parliament and black friday but we don't really i think recognise that they were subjected to torture yes and abuse by people in the street and police officers so i think in lots of ways the idea of assuming that women will take the streets might itself be quite gendered because actually the streets are not normally places where I think women necessarily congregate anyway. Yes. So, so maybe, in a way, your assumption already is buying into some of those ideas about what makes for rebellion, even though back, you know, 100 years ago, women had, in the few in the years prior to the war, really sort of taken themselves into the public sphere. But actually, that public private distinction, I think, is coming into play there.
1: I guess it's more to do with people marched about Iraq, about austerity. I suppose, that, you know, there was the women's march against Trump and that. So and that, it was huge. And that, that was massive. It was massive. But I just mean more at... More... Not even in a... More that men and women aren't. You know, more... that Just society isn't visibly outraged using the, the, the forms of protest that we have.
0: I think it's because in, in many ways it's framed too often as it, as it being women's fault that they're not in politics, that yeah. they haven't grasped power. You know, it's it's... You haven't got the right resources or you haven't demanded it or you haven't put yourself forward or you haven't you know, in many ways acquired the skills that you need. So quite a lot of the discourse ends up blaming women Mm. for their absence from the public sphere and from politics rather than saying, gosh, what on earth are we doing wrong in politics that means women don't do politics as part of their everyday lives. But again, let's think about mobilising during the week for a political party. I mean, how much time do you have? Do you need to participate? Mm. Can you? If you think lots of campaigning, lots of constituency campaigning, happens on a Saturday morning when the kids are back from school. Mm. And so we have to think about what makes the good prospective candidate. And if we always define that as the kind of activities that it is harder for people with caring needs, men and women, to do, but disproportionately we know that women are more likely to have those responsibilities, then the person who's put all the hours in and has delivered the thousands of leaflets and looks like the good person to to fight this election isn't going to be the woman who's got caring responsibilities, who doesn't have enough money to pay for some of that care. So I think some of this is about how we actually think of and frame the problem.
1: In terms of um, the modern problems facing uh, politics that that, that perhaps disproportionately affect women, the tone of politics now, the abuse that people get, is unlike anything I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Is there any evidence... Yet, that that is putting women off standing for parliament or becoming politicised or getting involved.
0: You will need to wait for some of the um, data that's coming out of the representative audit. Um, I believe you're having Rosie Campbell on next week. She might be able to tell you a bit more about that. But there will also be some new research available in a couple of months' time that will look into that. There was a BBC Radio 5 Live, I think, if that's what it's still called, um, it is, yeah. study that looked into social media. And I think there's very much a perception by women in the parties who's responsibilities or who are keen to bring more women into politics they're very concerned about it there's absolutely a sense that that it's putting women off but in terms of sort of if you want facts then 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 we'll need to wait for those surveys
1: yeah people don't care about facts anymore do they you can just make <laughs> That's it up true, yeah. everyone else's i should have made it
0: up Yeah. okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> um in one of your uh, brilliant papers that i read in uh, prior to this interview um there are eight questions uh well I'll tell you what I'll read out what you've written oh, God. in the remainder of this essay we consider the interplay and relative importance of substantive and descriptive representation we draw on a set of linked questions developed by various scholars as they operationalise the concept of polit- political representation for empirical research which I'm sure everyone is absolutely following absolutely knows <laughs> what I'm doing. so there are eight questions and I, sp- I just thought it would be interesting to go through yeah, all eight sure. with you so the first question is and I you know the, the answer perhaps is obvious to, to some maybe not to others Why should women be represented?
0: Well, again, that does depend on the kind of dimension of representation that you're talking about. But for me, it goes back, as you said right at the beginning, that obvious question. For reasons of political equality and political justice, women should be represented because, and again, this this is... sort of regurgitating Anne Phillips's very sort of um, dominant interpretation is that if there weren't any barriers there, it wouldn't be so skewed. I mean, we're talking about needing 300-odd women to fill the House of Commons. I could name 300 qualified, brilliant women to be in that House of Commons. Yeah. It's not that they're all out there. They may not have yet have been found, but that's something to do with the parties. So, yeah, women should be there because if there weren't barriers, they would be
1: there. And, I mean, it's just, it's just for better decision-making, isn't it? Like, it's not just in women's interest that women are there. It's in men's interest that women are there.
0: Well, I'd like to think that, but some men don't think that. I mean, you know you linked it straight away right and and it's good to link it but but you don't have to link it because even you know what worries me sometimes is people say look we'll get more women in because they're lovely and caring and sharing and they'll solve the world's problems but actually they should be there even if they be, they behave no differently from men it Absolutely. doesn't matter at on one level it doesn't matter what they do they should just be there for reasons yes. of justice and for reasons of political equality and in order to demonstrate that there aren't people gatekeeping and excluding women out what they then do is for me what I call an empirical question let's see what they do when they're there because so we then risk putting expectations on them. You must go there and you must do things for women in a certain kind of way. When actually if you're trying to work in in, in any kind of institution you have to navigate that institution and you might want to do certain things but you just might not be able to and you shouldn't get blamed for the kind of institutional culture that might constrain what you can actually do.
1: And equally you can't ask more of a female member of Parliament than you would a male member of Parliament. Men are allowed to go there and Eventually, do what they like and rebel and be nice or not or yep. whatever. Yep, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I, again, a question I was saving for later. But when we talk about three hundred women that could, you know, balance Parliament out, are you not one of them? No. Why not? <laughs> How not?
0: Because I like to read books and <laughs> sit in cafes and think and Parliament's write. Parliament's
1: full of books and cafes.
0: <laughs> That's, true. That's all it is. I'm, I'm not sure that I'd be very. I, I don't think I'm diplomatic enough. God, I don't think... That's what we need. No, I don't think it's for me. I know it's not for me. Oh, I don't, part. I don't,
1: there must be a 1%.
0: No.
1: People must ask you, though.
0: They... Well, I've not been actively recruited by a particular party, no. Until now.
1: <laughs> the political party party.
0: No, no, I really don't think that I um, want to do that at
1: all. But is there not... I mean... Mm. Hypocrisy isn't the right word, but no, certainly. It's not a
0: hypocrisy. <laughs> but an <laughs> irony,
1: but an irony that one of the most intelligent people in the country, by definition. I
0: don't have the people skills. I absolutely do not have the people skills. Now, I'd be quite keen to uh, scrutinise no, legislation or to work on political policy, but I do not have the people skills necessary to be in Parliament.
1: In but what do you mean case. by people skills? Because this has been fine so far. <laughs> like.
0: You know, no. Um, it's, it, I mean, when I, when I talk to MPs and I talk about the work they do and the commitment they have to campaigning and to running their constituency offices, to managing people, these are just not my skill set. Absolutely not.
1: I... I don't know. Having <laughs> met a lot of MPs, I mean, <laughs> you're far more impressive and capable than so many of them.
0: Yeah, but you haven't tested me out trying to organise a campaign. For a start, I'm absolutely frightened of dogs. I can't, I can't deliver leaflets...
1: Yeah, right. you know what? I completely. I think if you have a dog, you've opted out of the political <laughs> process. I would never. And I would check when I was leafleting for signs of a dog. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Paw prints on the front door, maybe a messy lawn, the things that suggest there's a dog there, chewed. Yeah. Um, you I know, I broke local, a
0: letterbox once putting a leaflet in. The letterbox kind of came out the door, and I thought that's a lost vote for somebody, isn't
1: it? So who were you. So you. Were you leafleting? No. For a part? No. We're not going to go there? No. Do you like to keep your. In that regard, do you keep your. Party affiliation, private?
0: I don't have a party affiliation. I'm not a member of any political party.
1: But you must be sort of more inclined towards one or the other. Or a part. No? Not going there.
0: I judge parties by their commitment to feminism. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to work with all parties. Of course. I mean, I do. Um, I mean, there might be some on the kind of radical, rightist, populist front that I would struggle Britain to. first. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are limits. Um, but no, I think all political... In it For me, if, if you believe in principle position that women should be equally present in politics, then you kind of think, I, for me at least, that needs to be true for all parties. I want all, if I want to look at a party, I want to see women there in equal numbers for all parties.
1: The question number two on this list of eight is, okay. who are the representatives of women?
0: So we need to we need to count. We still need to count. We're not at parity, and therefore we need to count who is present in our parliaments.
1: So that's simply numbers. Very
0: simple.
1: Yeah. Three, and we sort of touched on this earlier. Which women are represented?
0: Because if we just count bodies, then we're talking about sex, and we might be missing very important other aspects of people's identities. So we do need to be saying, you know, because if if you think that there's a disparity between men and women, and then you only see a certain kind of woman. In parliament then that should worry you too that's a that's a democratic deficit too
1: do you think we do any you type of, one type of woman in parliament
0: um in terms of ethnicity sexuality disability going back to class i think it is important that we have a range of women politics shouldn't just be something that certain kinds of people do
1: but at the moment do we we do yeah yeah because you've got jess phillips's very, you know, Jess Phillips, Esther McVeigh, a different voices. Rupert Hook is a different voice. Tulip yep. Sadiq. you know, there, there are various, you know, but when the, I num- think the number bo- of
0: BME MPs would need to need to almost double to reflect yes. the percentage of the country. Uh,
1: where does the representation of women occur?
0: Okay, this this really speaks to debates about whether we just think about politics occurring in elected political institutions, yes. or whether we think it's also going on outside and and increasingly, I think it's the relationship between the two. So how is it that our elected representatives are accessing the concerns, the perspectives, the attitudes, the feelings of those they represent and thinking about whether our political class is in some in some sense distant and not engaging with, not mobilising, not having sort of what we might call good representative relationships with those they act for and stand
1: for? I mean, that is obviously part of a wider perception at the moment that the, that the political class is distant and elitist it, and obviously to some extent people have always felt that and in an odd way strangely, Parliament is probably closer to the people now than it's ever been but there is a sense that we are living in the age of the outsider, of the renegade where Trump and Brexit and Corbyn are even though Corbyn's only ever had one job in his life and it was a politician there is a sense that actually this is something that needs to be shaken up, that, that, that people are distant is that and i suppose this is a a side point really but is that perception correct is is parliament more distant than it's been or or particularly distant and um how long does this period last
0: yeah i mean i think there's a number of ways of answering that kind of question some of it is about say looking at changing information from the hansard society which looks at how well or how how well represented the people feel they are and you can see kind of decline and and that's a kind of Western European phenomenon, that sense of of feeling that there's something amiss. But you can also think about how the expenses scandal had an impact on how people felt. Uh, From a completely different perspective, you can say actually MPs are spending much more time in their constituencies, are are doing way more uh, of that kind of work than they would have done a generation ago. I think it's also about thinking about select committees and and how they are connecting and who are they connecting with. You know, committee witness diversity is one of those really interesting um, areas of sort of new scholarship where people are saying, well, actually, if the same people are speaking to the same people about the same issues, then maybe again we're not necessarily enhancing the information that our representatives have when they make their decisions. So, so for me, something like looking at the committee. Witness diversity data is really important when we think about whether Parliament is speaking to and connecting with people beyond, whether that's organised groups in civil society or whether it's even through, for example, calls for evidence, e-petitions, all of those kind of activities can can link. So in lots of ways, Parliament's doing a lot to reach out and there's been a lot of investment in many of these kind of activities and I think they can often get missed in those very bold kind of headlines which say they're all out of touch.
1: How much is tone important here? Because, and it could be construed as a, perhaps a quite a cosmetic problem, but a desire for politics to sort of sound and feel different. So it's not there was an appeal to Farage, and obviously that was a constructor persona. There's an appeal to Boris again, but to Corbyn, that a kind of a slightly unspun politician is what we're after. That that post people were fine with Blair being like that, but then it, it was almost the sort of post Blair era. The Milliband, you know, Burnham era. It's this where... question
0: of authenticity, yes. isn't it? And what makes somebody authentic? And I think, you know, people construct their authentic identities and, and some people get to be perceived as authentic even yeah. when those identities are constructed and some just don't manage it. So I think there is a desire to see people who people perceive as authentic. Whether those people are authentic, I think is a completely different question.
1: Is that harder for women?
0: Um I don't think I know the answer to that. I think it's harder for women to be seen as likeable, as competent, as authoritative. So there's lots of aspects of political leadership that is quite hard for women to perform because you very quickly transgress gender norms. So yeah. if you're confident, you're pushy. If you're, um, it's very hard to be one of the lads when you're not really one of the lads. And if you tr- if you are one of the lads, then you're also not quite right. So, so I think in lots of ways our whole concepts of political leadership are highly gendered. And then what you end up is having to try to disaggregate whether criticism is because somebody is a woman and is displaying inappropriate gender traits or whether actually they're not doing it very well. (laughs) And, I mean, you know, Julia Gillard talked about this last week as she launched her new um, research centre, and I think it was an interesting way of putting it, you know. How do you cut through that?
1: She was put through hell. That yeah. was disgraceful the way she was treated, and I would Hillary Clinton is an idol of mine. I'd say <laughs> been despicably treated by people on the left as well as people on the right. Oddly, talking about the sort of biases people have there, the the gender um, element, I always my instinctive bias, and I know this, is to actually think of women as more competent than men. Now maybe that's because I was raised by a single mum, but I always sort of prefer female <laughs> leaders i think i think well, you, well i
0: like the sound of your mum <laughs> yeah she's a she's a very
1: strong woman and yep. i just think i see men oddly a slightly more feckless It's <laughs> almost the Hitchens view of the world which is actually if you want the economy to grow you put women in charge I just think natu- my natural bias is to yeah. instinctively think well that Thatcher always said
0: that you know if you want something done you ask a woman didn't she She's on my fridge actually you know, I've got the exact same <laughs> you know what what's
1: really strange I bought that fridge magnet for my mum the one with parliament in the <laughs> background <laughs> if you want something said ask a man if you mm-hmm. want something done ask a woman I think that's the quote yeah, the yeah, great it is, quote it's brilliant the only way I could get something uh, thatcher <laughs> into my mum's um, house Um So question five on the list is, how is the substantive representation of women done?
0: Yes. So what we're trying to do there is to, to actually think about what's going on, because we talk about women getting into Parliament and acting for women. And actually, what does that mean? How is politics changed? What kind of actions do they undertake in respect of what kind of concerns and I think that opens up a huge area. Lots, there's been lots of sort of studies that look at, say, the kind of questions that are asked, the uh, issues that are perhaps raised. So you might, for example, think about um, Stella Creasy's work on abortion in Northern Ireland and actually look at what, what's been done. How has, how has she used those processes within Parliament, as well as the media and other activity that she engaged in in order to get that issue on the on the table or someone like Alison Thewlis on the rape clause and the extent to which over you know considerable mm-hmm. amount of time she is not giving up on that clause she you know she wants it gone and actually thinking about how is she doing that those kind of questions
1: Stella Creasy is uh, I mean in, in many regards uh, an mp for our times in the sense that she is not in the shadow cabinet but is one of the most prominent and recognizable not just Labour MPs, but members of Parliament, and highly effective, not just campaigning on women's rights, but, you know, a, f- a most famous thing was on payday lenders. Yep. How is she an example of how, not just female MP, but of a good MP?
0: Well, I think, when you, say, when you said to me about, why did I not want to an, be an MP? <laughs> yeah. I think when I look at her, that's precisely why I think I don't. Because, actually, <laughs> in lots of ways, what she does is very bottom-up, very grassroots, very... Um, she mobilizes those around her she's tenacious and she's very skillful in deploying publicity but behind the scenes activity and i think in lots of ways she is a, a really good example of an mp who i was going to say works her patch but i, but I think i do mean that that is kind of of the constituency yes. and acting for it um and so i think she 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 does have those kind of skills that increasingly i think MPs engage with but I guess she's also part of that group of Labour MPs who have an alternative career path in the contemporary period which is not necessarily through the shadow yeah. you know cabinet and, and getting into that
1: I think an increasing number of them are having to have political careers outside <laughs> the shadow cabinet at the moment um, whether it will become the cabinet or not who knows uh, now this is a fascinating question number six when does the representation take place
0: well, this this is about time and thinking about how we need to add into our accounts understandings of change over time and whether or not we need we might need to think about institutions becoming more ripe for certain kinds of activities um thinking about how certain kind of mobilizations on some issues might then prompt subsequent ones and just to really think that um Things don't just happen. Politics doesn't just happen. There's often a lot of groundwork that needs to be undertaken before you might end up seeing the policy outcome. So there might have been... a. In in some ways, um, I'm doing some recent work um, with Peter Allen at the University of Bath, where where we've looked at the Parliamentary Labour Party Women's Committee and looked at the kind of issues they were talking about and trying to track through how those issues... Are focused again on again and again, and tried to feed into, say, the manifestos, and actually thinking about. Um, in lots of ways, you sometimes see something that appears to have come out of nowhere. Yeah. And actually, we need to think. We need to pro- what's called process trace back to see where they came from, how they developed, and who was mobilising them, and what kind of times and why. Uh,
1: question seven: To whom are representatives accountable?
0: Yeah. This, this is an interesting one because obviously when we talk about women's political presence we're kind of overlapping gender identity on a party system. So we've got women MPs getting selected by their parties, elected by the public and then we kind of say as academics, oh, are they acting for women? But actually they're members of parties responsible in many, many ways like every other MP to their party. Yes. So again, we might be holding them to standards that... Deny the fact that they have party identities, ideological commitments, and politics, and so that just tries to clarify who it is. We think they should be accountable to.
1: And I, I imagine opinion varies.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So if you go back to your question about you know how how good was Mrs. Thatcher as a prime minister, if you are holding to account from a conservative perspective or a conservative woman's perspective at that time, which you might, you might want to compare mass attitudes among mm. conservative women voters in 1979 or 1983. If you compare what she did to other groups of women and their views at that time or at T plus five, then you'll get different kinds of answers. So sometimes it's about, you know, we look at, um, this is work, again, I've done with Rosie Campbell. We've looked at what the attitudes of MPs are from a particular party and how closely they correspond to the attitudes of women in the wider electorate and amongst party members or party activists.
1: And off the top of your head, what... What?
0: <laughs> OK, so, that, so the, 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 off my top of my head, my God, this is yeah. old stuff, um, that actually I think we came away with the conclusion that actually women... Um, Some people may not want women representatives. Some women may not want women representatives, but they probably need them because, attitudinally, they are closer.
1: So, in terms of the women that don't want women representatives, um, and I've witnessed this myself, where does that come from? What's the explanation for that?
0: Often it's um, because they prioritise other identities. So, if, if you ask them to rank what makes a good MP, sex is very far down because... In a sense they want someone who is like them is local has the same attitudes as them and that they don't see sex as a kind of political category in that way so but i but i think that might be different from what you're pointing to which is those overt people who say i won't vote for a woman i think those are very different things so i'm not talking about the latter case i'm talking about those um who do not see it um I mean, as a in a significant way, category, that it that it shouldn't matter. I think some of it comes back from the fact that it shouldn't yeah. matter.
1: And in a way, in a way, there's something positive about that.
0: Yes, there's no discrimination against women in terms of voting. Women women who stand as candidates do not suffer a penalty from the voter.
1: And that's provable.
0: Yeah,
1: that's reassuring. I mean, Ask it's rosy
0: about that one. It, <laughs> we have
1: to. Oh, I will. Um, <laughs> I mean, we do have to check ourselves, don't we? Sometimes. Um, I remember seeing Adam Afrayi... Give a speech at the Tory party conference where he talked about race and he said, you know, people always asked him, how can you be conservative if you're black? He's like, but I own a business. That's why I'm a conservative. And it really just, someone who'd been on the left for a long time, um, just it was just a slight check on my thinking that don't presume that all women should think, you know, should want women representatives, that all black people should should be left wing or anything like that. There can be sometimes something quite patronising about people who promote equality in the sense that they don't see anything else about the person. Yeah, and I suppose that's a danger.
0: And I think, for me, oh, just, my...
1: well, I hope I didn't sound silly there. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I was but... just saying,
0: what for me is important is when we look at our political institutions that they do look like the country that they represent. Yes, and that's at the aggregate level. So you, you know, it. You know, I'm not expecting a woman in a constituency who's for all her life been a member of one political party to go oh my candidate's a man I'm going to vote for a woman on the completely opposite end of the spectrum that's kind of crazy but when you wake up on you know the day after the election you look at the 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 lovely glamorous pictures uh, or diagrams whatever the word is for the, the images that the BBC will produce I want to make sure it looks yes in some ways in many ways much more like our country than it currently does and I think that is a problem
1: it's a huge problem, and it, quite apart from people, you know, the whole, you know, to see it, to be it, and all the rest of it. Just from a from a satisfaction that our society is moving in the right direction, a diversity of voices that helps make decision making on any level, not just in parliament, in in any workplace, in any environment where decisions have to be made. A, a, a broader spectrum is always more desirable. Um, question eight how effective is the claimed representation claimed is a yes. big word in that
0: okay so mike saywood fantastic political theorist talks about representative claims and actually lots of people can make claims to represent you to promise to do things for you and in fact we actually need to interrogate whether those claims are followed through so are they talking the talk are they walking the walk are you holding a number of claims at the same time that sometimes kind of get dumped Or Trump, so you can make, you know, you you can talk about, for example, supporting uh, commitments to end violence against women. But if you're not putting the money there, then that claim needs to be queried. Yes. So, you know, we need to think about whether the claims that are made are followed through in such a way that they really deliver on what they promised.
1: As you would with any policy. Yeah. The the deeds really are... But I mean, I think it's important
0: to note that, that, you know, there are politicians, um, this has been observed in the US in particular, who will make claims to... and use women to make claims about protecting women on issues where that party isn't going to do that. So it's become... You know, we we call it inter-party competition over women's issues. All political parties, if you look at the manifestos in 2017, will make claims for how they're going to address women. Sometimes very specifically as mothers or as women who um, have caring responsibilities. Yes. And, in a way, is that just rhetoric? And is it really backed up with the money? Because that's, that's often where those policies um, fall down, because providing the kind of um, resources and the state provision for many of those responsibilities are, are not cheap.
1: In terms of moving towards a more equal society and a more equal parliament, do you think it will happen in in my life, in your life? Do you think we would see gender balance in parliament by a particular year?
0: We could we could change it almost immediately. Obviously, yeah. that would depend on an election. But, it, you know, if you wanted to change it really rapidly, you just introduce quotas across the board, legislative quotas. We saw a couple of years ago now in Ireland, a new quota law, parties found women, numbers of candidates went up, and that's in a system where it's quite hard to do. If... The government I mean the government has still not commenced I'm going to sound a bit technical here section 106 of the Equality Act 2010 that requires candidate diversity data it's not even about quotas
1: yeah it's about it's, information
0: it's about information which again is about transparency and about trying to ensure change in a soft way but if you wanted to change the law you could prescribe that all political parties have to deliver a much much higher equal numbers of men and women you could change it at one election if you had the political will and if you got the legislation through.
1: Because you have access not only to huge amounts of uh, information and through your own expertise, great knowledge of the area, but you you have access to Parliament, you you have influence there and obviously Parliament's one thing, the executive is quite another, but through the all-party group, through the Good Parliament Report, the work that you do with the Speaker and the Speaker's office, do you get a sense that, where is parliamentary opinion on stuff like that? Is there widespread support for it?
0: Um, well, there's not enough widespread support for the introduction of legislative quotas, no. The mm. government is, gave, gave the, the um, Women Equalities Committee last year very, very short shrift. So the Women Inequalities Committee ran with... Um, recommendations around quotas that sort of were versions of of things I, I've advocated in the past, and in fact, the government's response to the, to that uh, inquiry was, I think, you know, embarrassing uh, and and not good enough. And as I suggested with Section One Hundred Six, they're not even prepared to act on the most minimal intervention. So I'm beginning to think that um, the government really needs to be forced in this kind of anniversary year of was, you know the first women getting suffrage to act on this. It's not good enough. We don't do. You know, well enough globally, you know, we can look across to Ireland and see how quote, quotas work. If you want evidence based, you know, policy making globally, good quotas with good um, incentives or penalties, strong penalties, really do work. So, this for me is a failure of, of a political will.
1: How difficult do you find it to uh, engage men in parliament or indeed men in general? in these <laughs> Just issues. Men in general. Just men in general. Well,
0: yeah, I don't often try to speak to men in general about some of these issues because I've learnt to save my energy. Um, <laughs> I mean, outside of Parliament, obviously. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there, there are... There are male allies, absolutely fundamental. If you're trying to change an institution and those who have many of the levers to change, if they're men, then you need them on, on side, right? Yeah. I think it's also really unfair to, to good men if you don't think of them as people who can help you change you know yeah. it's very sad i think when there's an assumption that that men all men will be blocking uh, in terms of the work i've done in parliament you know i have relied on some very senior men who have been hugely supportive both behind the scenes and in public and i think when we when we when i when i attend those meetings of the commons reference group on representation and inclusion the role of speaker in that has been you know absolutely critical to supporting it to chairing it to providing some resources for having symbolic leadership putting efforts into these kind of things but there are also men in political parties there are men who are members of that group i didn't want to create for this group, a women-only group, because actually men help change things, because often they're the ones who can persuade others. And again, you you mentioned earlier on about some of the efforts the Conservative Party have done. They were absolutely clear back pre-David Cameron that if they didn't have men on board, then change wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they they had a campaign a couple of years ago now, um, which was about daughters and using men to mobilise around opening up political um, opportunities to women by saying you know we've got daughters and we want them to have fair opportunities. Now people can be critical of that kind of approach which is you get to men by saying what is if it's your daughter or if it's your sister but you know it kind of works on the ground so I think you know we have to recognise that this is not sort of it doesn't have to be men against women it's about whether you are committed to political equality and good politics and the good Parliament and if you are then you need to put yourself forward.
1: It's good to know. I mean, I, I know that there are there are good men in there who are, who are, who are on side. There are other men like Philip Davies who. Um, yes, he uh, wasn't very nice
0: to... about my report. He didn't. He didn't like. It. I think he thought I was. Yeah. Yes. I think he doesn't really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> what did he say?
0: I can't actually remember now. But he he says something in Hansard. Uh, I think I'm one of the most ridiculous women, or something like that. Yeah. He's he's not terribly, terribly in favour of what I have to say. But you know, he's that's
1: fine. One of those. People that doesn't realise how cliched he is in terms of his fame. He <laughs> is the guy, I think. Jess Phillips is constantly. <laughs> He's of the sort of bloke who always asks when's International Men's Day. That sort of attitude, you know. Yeah, yes. Really, you know. Quite apart from the fact that there is an International Men's mm-hmm. Day, and uh, if you care that much, you'd know. But secondly, in an equal society where the male, you know, are overrepresented, then there was three hundred. Sixty-four, really. Yeah. International Men's <laughs> Day, and to not appreciate that is uh, yes. what it, what it does actually. And this is this is what frustrates me about it sometimes is: if people are out of touch on this issue, this issue, what else are they wrong about? Where are they on race? Where are they on sexuality? Where are they on class? On all sorts of things. And it was, I suppose, we're coming back to the discussion that we had at the start. Class is something that's very close to my heart, but I would never see it as a hierarchy against. Yeah. Classes obviously affects both genders, yeah. so it's a real shame when people will then have a hierarchy of disadvantage and say, "Well, actually, yeah. class is more important," and use that as a way of preventing women and when getting they, access. And when
0: that's framed like that, people forget that women are half of the working class as well, right? Yeah. It just it slips so quickly in some people's minds yeah. from being a you know you're you know it's, it's it's all the women are middle class and all the working class are male, and I think that's a very dangerous opposition.
1: It's just a couple of, well what I was going to ask you in terms of how much of your time are you spending then <laughs> trying to sort parliament out because you're you're on the all party, party no, that parliamentary was his, group that's,
0: historic. that's oh, historic so that was before so I advised them uh, around the time of their 2014 report
1: ok so that's yep. quite a few years ago yep. um, that reflects badly on my research <laughs> um, but it was an important work nevertheless uh, do you spend much time there?
0: I do yes Um it varies. The The Commons Reference Group um, meet about once a month, pretty much once a month when Parliament's sitting, so I'm involved in that I attend those meetings and obviously I work with um, the staff who are involved with that and talk to MPs around that on a regular basis.
1: And in terms of... Um,
0: it's impact, right? So the yes. universities like it. <laughs> in terms of the function of the
1: group, what, what, what do the meetings involve?
0: So... When I wrote the report, I came up with 43 recommendations, right? And I linked them to particular people or aspects or part of Parliament. And so the group itself had some of its own recommendations. But also, I see the the, the group as being able to mobilise and to put pressure on some other actors or individuals within Parliament to address the the recommendations that I put to them. Now, of course, you know, the Commons Reference Group can decide to prioritise some of the, the my recommendations can come up with their own, but it's really about carrying on the process of trying to make the House of Commons much more gender-sensitive. So we've worked on a number of the recommendations and obviously in the, in the last sort of uh, few months we've been talking a lot about parliamentary culture.
1: Have you seen any progress? Yes. In what areas?
0: They range from uh, making the Women Equalities Committee permanent, which it wasn't when it was first introduced, and that's happened, so that's now a permanent committee. Uh, the 10-year dead rule in artwork has gone. Did you know about that rule? No. So this was a rule that said that you had to be dead for 10 years before you could have a portrait in the palace, so not in Port Collis House, but in the palace. And this rule, I was told, came about because parliament did not want to accept a portrait of nancy astor so they borrowed a rule from the national portrait gallery and that was a way to stop this portrait going in so it was a misogynistic rule. No yeah and when i was when i was told this i just thought right that's going in as a recommendation yeah brilliant okay so and that's, that's gone that's gone that's great yeah. and then the, the the one that's currently really live is to do with 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 mp's baby leave so yes. i don't know whether you're aware of this but um there's been a motion of the House. The Procedure Committee is currently looking at how to put this into practice. So we're waiting for them to uh, produce a report on that. But again, that's something in in, in the Good Parliament report I very much uh, felt that we needed to provide baby leave for MPs Absolutely. because, you know... There are times when the House needs to be treated as a special place and other times it should look much more uh, and, and, and follow the good practice of other institutions and it's just unacceptable that we hide the fact that increasingly our MPs, our women MPs, are having babies and we should, you know get into the 21st century.
1: Yes, well, it'd be good to get into the 20th, <laughs> let alone the 21st. So no, I'm really
0: hopeful on that one. I'm really hopeful on that one. There may be a couple of men uh, mobilising to try and stop this, so you need to keep... You need to, we need to keep an eye on this because uh, I'm a bit concerned about a couple and I'm not going to name them, but... Oh, go on. No, I'm not. But I do feel that the Procedure Committee should be, at this point, coming up with the answer.
1: I, I agree. Um... I mean, that's a, the baby lead thing actually goes to the heart of a, of a bigger problem in politics, which is being more honest about what the role of politicians are, what the, their limitations are, and what the public should conceivably expect. Yeah. I've worked for a variety of MPs and know a lot of them, cross-party. They're scared to have any holiday at all. They are expected to be on call the whole time. There are Basically, we are living in a period of almost total disrespect towards politicians, and there is no acceptance that they should have any sort of mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. children or otherwise. Yep. And equally, a lot of the job of the MP is, is done by their staff, yeah. because of course it is, because they're only one person. So, yep. you know, I'm sure most constituents, if explained, would totally appreciate that just because the MP is away or ill or on maternity leave or paternity leave, mm-hmm. that actually they can still get help with their dispute with the council, they can still be just as effectively representative and helped through the mechanisms that an MP's office, who do a lot of the work, could actually do. And
0: yet we still have the possibility of there being a vote where somebody who may have just given birth and is representing some, I don't know, constituency, hundreds of miles away, is going to be called back. And I think that's ludicrous.
1: That is. I mean, you, the, the pairing system, although it is...
0: Just doesn't work well enough.
1: No, and it's uh, it it's, seems to have eroded. It, it
0: has, and it's, it's not transparent. Again,
1: yeah. you
0: know, I was warned off um, putting a recommendation about baby leave into the report because I was accused um, of creating a scandal, uh, you know, and, and I was told that it works perfectly fine behind the scenes, although, of course, it doesn't always because sometimes you do have to come in having just sort of literally given birth. Yeah. Um, but But more than that, it's about... Lying and, and pretending that that they, this that isn't happening, and yeah. and I think that lays those who are on leave open to media criticism, yes. social media criticism. You know, their electorate saying, "Where are you? Why aren't yeah. you?" That? You know, so you know we have to be. I think you're right. We have to sort of say, "This is a job." at times like other jobs, and we have to have legitimate boundaries because if you don't, then again you're going to be exclusive in terms of who's prepared and who is able to actually do that job. And that's why also I I should add that I'm very much in favour of of the possibility of MPs' job share.
1: Yes. That's a great idea.
0: Yeah, most people do not like
1: it. But how how would you structure it?
0: Okay, this is about two people... Seeking selection in the first interest, in, yeah. in, in first instance, as a pair, right? They're indivisible. Yeah. So, uh, in the report that, that, that Rosie Campbell and I edited for the Forces Society, we're not advocating a half a vote, right? You vote as one, and we, we talk about it in or, or draw the analogy to uh, two doctors' job sharing. Yeah, you don't have one who's all in favour of, say, his directories at the first, you know. <laughs> error of, of something going wrong and somebody who's very much more into holding on to all of one's gynecological um, aspects. You have people who pretty much share the same kind of attitude to yeah. invasive surgery or non-invasive surgery. So, you know, if I'm going to pair as a politician, I find somebody who, or job share rather, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to find somebody who are pretty much align myself with. This is not beyond the realm of possibility, given that people who are in politics have friendships, they know They know other people. You have to have a procedure, you have to have an agreement, and you put that in front of the selectorate, and you put that in front of the electorate. So you might decide on a rule that says, where we disagree on a vote, we just abstain. Yeah. And given that MPs are allowed to abstain, that's no different. You don't know when you elect your single sure. MP whether they're going to vote or whether they're even going to vote in any one particular direction.
1: But would they both be MPs for the full term? Yep. And would that apply in every seat?
0: Uh, it could do. I don't expect it to. My, yeah. my um, I wrote a blog where I said, I'm desperately seeking an elderly gentleman with a rather large majority <laughs> to try and get this introduced. I mean, maybe the legislature... Because you'd have to have some new legislation. But if you had new legislation, in the first instance, you could trial it. You could say, for the first two parliaments, up to ten people... Job share, maybe so. So, you know, we we could try and make it a little less radical for folk by not suddenly imagining there's going to be 1200 MPs, right?
1: Yeah, and equally, you can't just have one party benefiting from it because you just
0: no, but you would probably have um prescriptive, uh, not prescriptive, you'd have permissive legislation if a political party wished to accept a candidate that was a job share couple. Then they could. So in the same way that all women shortlist legislation is permissive and not prescriptive, you could also add a sunset clause and say actually, if after two parliaments it's an absolute bloody disaster, you know, then you stop it. Um, So there is lots of ways of making this a slightly less scary idea. Um,
1: The Greens, obviously have done this at the top, and
0: And it was in their manifesto. It was
1: in their manifesto, and they they have two leaders, Bartley and uh, Lucas, who um, share the job of leadership. Is that? That's a, that's a different thing, really, isn't it? Isn't it? it is Share different, because that's,
0: that's a leadership thing. And the, the, the big difference, of course, is that you're asking the public to support two people acting as a single representative. And that's why often this gets host, you know hostile reactions. Because I think from MPs, they and, and here I draw an analogy with um, Benedict Anderson, a theorist of, of um, nationalism, and he talks about imagined communities. And I think MPs imagine that they have... A representative relationship with their constituents, because mm. most people actually don't see their MP or write to their MP, their MP or actually have anything to do with their MP. Or know course, who they are, or, or even know who they are. So I think if we, if we, again this is about changing people's ideas about what the what the role is and recognising that, as I said, like the GP, you know it's okay to have two people sharing the job. Yeah, it really is. Um, but we shall see where that goes. I think that would be the most fantastic new piece of legislation
1: exactly. in, the, in the 100
0: years of women's suffrage. If we could have a new piece of legislation. And can I just add, I know that I'm sort of banging on about this slightly.
1: No, that's what you're here for.
0: In lots of ways, this idea of job share came about in terms of gender. But actually, as we did the work, it became very clear this is also one means of actually a very basic political right for people, some people who are disabled. Because yes. we might argue that if women want to job share, that might be because they have young children or caring responsibilities, they might want to do it for part of their life, but for some individuals, they will never be able to work full-time. Yeah. And one of our basic political rights is of participation. And actually, in a sense, I sometimes increasingly think that job share for MPs is about enabling those individuals to access a political right that they wouldn't otherwise be able to... If I wanted to be an MP... Um, I could choose, say, if I was young now. If I thought I couldn't manage it with children, although obviously lots of people can and they should, you could decide not to, do, you know, not to have children if you wanted to do it. But if you are someone who cannot physically or mentally work full time, so true. Then it, and so I think it's a very powerful argument around disability.
1: And actually, on just on top of that, some MPs work incredible hours that are not good for them, yep. that are not good for their families and their friends. MPs that make themselves ill and have heart attacks, and I've known it happened to people, friends of mine, because the demands on them are so severe and they take the office so seriously and they're good, hard-working people. And, it I mean, you only need to look at how people age as politicians. The stress and the hours are... So, actually, this is just a good well-being for (laughs) for all of them. And it's even if it doesn't happen, it's just a really good, provocative... (laughs) Idea to to consider and to to throw into the debate,
0: and we need to keep our eye on Wales because Wales is is um, considering a report uh, that was chaired by Laura McAllister, and again, job share is part of that report. So you know, you never know. Westminster might find itself looking westwards, I guess, and yeah. seeing something else going on down there.
1: I mean, there is, and I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but there is, and it, it, you know, I, <laughs> I got my I, 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 I got my answer earlier, but. You spend so much time improving Parliament, improving politics, you have all this expertise. I can't believe you don't want to go that extra step. You're spending so much time there, anyway, improving it and making (laughs) the world a better place. Why not take that extra step? Okay, if it was a job share, would you do it? If you got that law through, would you say, right, I'll be a job share MP?
0: I still would say no, because it's not... The skill sets that I talked about before, about not having and not enjoying, would remain.
1: I think you're being too hard on yourself. This is the <laughs> Alan Johnson yeah. problem. The people who talk themselves out of it, the people who should be doing it.
0: Here, I'm going I'm to throw back something you said earlier on about men who sometimes say the wrong thing. Yeah. You should just accept that it's not for me, but that I am prepared to spend lots and lots of my time making it more accessible for women who do want to go into politics. And I think lots of women who currently may not think that it's for them could do it, yeah. but it absolutely is not for me. I like what I do which is researching and teaching
1: well I'm going to start petitions <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people listening to this will think you are exactly the sort of person that politics needs but of course I have no diplomacy but I, well <laughs> that could, that's, not, that's not always a bad thing mm. we need blunt straight communicators no nope. it's a no no nope. Sarah mom <laughs> it has been. I
0: could,
1: I could like that. It has flown by. It's been the most. Uh, uh, there's so much more I want to talk about. So hopefully we can get you one again in the future.
0: Yep. When I get some other nice, good recommendation through, let's come back and celebrate. Well, well that's
1: it. It would be really good to start doing on here, keeping progress actually of mm-hmm. things that are happening. So maybe in a year's time, get like an update, or if something happens, get you back in. And I'm sure, well. Lots will happen. That goes goes without saying. <laughs> But it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you.
0: It's been much fun. Thank you. Cheers.
1: There you go. Professor Sarah Charles. Mom, However you choose to address her, should you meet her. Um, Absolutely superb. And it just... There's so much more. There's so much more to talk about. And I'm sure, um, I'm sure we will. Uh, do send us your thoughts. Keep the discussion going over email, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. But what a phenomenal ability to distill so many different ideas in ways that are, you know, these are the sort of gifts we need in politics, is putting them in such a way that they are frankly compelling and very hard to disagree with. And not just in terms of the principles. Of representation but the effects of them as well Um, it was great and I I can't wait to get back in she was absolutely fantastic and it was just you know I'm sure you could tell at times perhaps I always do feel and maybe these are just my own hang-ups awkward as a man talking to women about you know female representation because how can I ever really know I know that equality is desirable and not just in a selfless way, but in a selfish way. I do want a broader range of voices because I think they'll make better decisions that will make my life better. But I will never know what it's like to face the prejudice, the 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 you know, being patronised by your peers or by the public. I will just never live through that in that way. So I'm just always very aware that I'm about to put my foot in my mouth. So I hope I didn't do that. Um, it was just. I had. Uh, what a thrilling and stimulating discussion. That's one of the great things about politics, is it takes so many different forms. And it's so intellectually stimulated, as well as the emotion, which is obviously highly present in politics at the moment, just the intellectual stimulation of having an expert come in and give you the benefit of all those years of education and all those years of experience, and they choose to come on a show. It was just a treat. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm sure you did. You might have even enjoyed it more, if there's such a thing as possible. Uh, As always, if you'd like to help the show, please leave a review on iTunes, hit subscribe, share it amongst your friends, and on social media you can come and see me live thanks to everyone who came to the Soho Theatre it was just such a wonderful experience there Um, I'm around the country in Banbury, Chippenham, Sale, Tiverton and various other places you can get tickets for those shows through my website mattford.com slash live I'll be back next week but for now that was The Political Party with Professor Sarah Childs and this episode was produced by Sarah Bishop